Hello, welcome to the Deceptively Fast Podcast. I am on vacation, and a lot of you might be wondering, Seth, aren't you primarily concerned with the NFL in your job? I mean, in the spring when you're talking about basketball and baseball, we know what the deal is. You're just waiting for football season to begin. You're just putting on a good show of it. And while all of that is true, uh, I have other obligations and duties, and I had one Actually, I had like two weeks of vacation left, and I've got to move. So I took this week of vacation to make an in-town move, and we're taking our leisurely time about it, which never never ends up being as leisurely as you think it's going to be when you say, hey, let's take this very stressful experience, and instead of compressing it into one or two days, let's take a week. We're really just making an event of it, uh, like, a, like a picnic of moving doesn't work out that way and it just gets increasingly more stressful as you lose more and more sleep and uh, start to get at each other's throats but we'll be just fine the marriage is rock solid my daughter still loves me as far as I can tell her no matter what she says uh, when she's frustrated with me and we're in the middle of moving in the middle of all of that I have been keeping up with the NFL obviously um, but also listening to Dan Carlin's hardcore history podcast I'm on the fourth episode of his World War One story, um, and I don't know what you would call it other than I, I, I. You don't call it a story. You don't call it an encapsulation. It's so complex and just so incredibly overwhelming in terms of everything that went on, the sheer numbers of of people that were killed and maimed and wounded um, or rendered psychologically incapable of going on with their lives. Just uh, all, all these horror stories that you already kind of remember from learning about this in high school and college. Uh, just just astounding what World War One was. And Dan Carlin, this is the first time I've listened to his podcast. A bunch of people have kept recommending it to me. It's one of those things, you know, when somebody is recommending you something uh, so so frequently that you start to almost resent the thing that's being re- recommended to you. Like, why? What? 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 what what's this going to change my life? I don't want to listen to this. But most of all, I don't want to feel things. Well, now I have not only uh, felt things; I've uh, felt them deeply, and it, it gets you whole thinking about just so many different things. Um, two things: one, just the the sheer enormity of what. World War One and World War Two were as, but especially in World War One, where this was when people were encountering modern warfare for the first time, and they were completely unprepared for it. In that, the generals, the admirals, all these other people had their nineteenth-century notions of how a war should be fought: the cavalry charge, um, the charge itself in general, just like charging the enemy which made a whole lot of sense when people had relatively primitive weapons. But when somebody's got a machine gun and they're just mowing entire and entire divisions down in front of them um and 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 it took an incredibly frustrating long time for commanders to realize that that's not the way you need to conduct a war anymore um so there's that obviously and just the sheer carnage and just how miserable and awful trench warfare was uh and 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 all of that but then also we're getting to one part where he's describing this this Almost, I don't want to say a camaraderie, but the understanding of the German soldiers and the French or the British soldiers on the other side of the trenches that 
understood how miserable it was for all of them. And if you think about Europe at that time and how classist it was um, and the way so many countries were still ruled by an aristocracy, even if they're in a democracy, it's still it's still a certain class that's ruling over them. And the, the class system was much more rigid than anything that we've experienced in America. You can see how socialism was appealing to a lot of those soldiers because they're getting told to go over the top of these trenches and they're being largely told by the by these dandies behind them to do it um and and they could see how senseless and worthless it was and uh, society itself too is is they're being ruled by this aristocracy and being commanded to do all these things you can see i was just one one part of the stew of everything that was going on politically afterwards and and this is one thing that i always try to remember when we have our modern notions of socialism and communism and it's easy to look back and think, well, how could how could people in the 1920s not understand how foolish communism was uh, as as a, a political system and or an economic system, especially? And yeah, I think you always have to put yourself in their situation and realize just how meager their existence was and how low their prospects for advancement may have been, um, especially in a rapidly industrializing situation, just what it meant for people and how they wanted to rebel against it. But anyway, that's not a whole lot about football now, is it? The other thing that I did uh, is I started working out again because I've abandoned my Orange Theory Fitness. As much as I love Orange Theory Fitness, uh, I, I cannot be running on treadmills anymore. I need to be more low impact. So to be more low impact, as I'm moving here, I started uh, working out on my, my power rack out in my gym. I started doing like squats and bench press and military press and all that. But this is, this is what, I, what happened. And because of this, I know one of two things. I put weight on the on the barbell bench for the first time in a long time, and I repped out 275 for 10 pretty easily, like without even straining too hard. I stopped because I didn't want to tear a peck or anything. That's what all the kids are doing these days. They're tearing pecs. So um, that tells me one of two things. One, either I've got true dad strength now because I've been a dad for a while and because I'm 43 – or two, and this is the more likely thing, it's that I've probably gotten pretty hefty um, and I refuse to step on a scale because I don't want to know how hefty I am. But I, I, this is something that big guys out there will appreciate this and know exactly what I'm talking about. When you just gain weight, you get stronger when you get bigger. You're, sure, it's mostly fat, but there's some muscle in there too. And that's what's so tempting in the off season when you're a football player, a, a lineman especially – is that you can do all the running in the off-season program and keep up with it reasonably well. And you might fool yourself into thinking you're just as fast as you ever were, because maybe you are when you're getting timed in a 40 or something or some agility drills, but you just keep getting stronger. So all of a sudden you find yourself weighing 335, 340, 345 pounds, and you're strong as hell, and you keep getting stronger, and you keep thinking, well, yeah, but I'm, I'm squatting so much or I'm leg pressing so much that I'm going to be able to handle all this weight then you get out there in August and you feel like you're going to die, and that's where I am right now. I feel like I, uh, I feel like if I if I lifted weight for a month or two, 
and stayed at this current weight, whatever it might be, I think it might be, I'm, I'm guessing I might be pushing over 300 a little bit. I could get back up to where I'm like repping 345 out or something. And uh, isn't that what it's all about when you're 43 years old and there's absolutely no reason that you should be using that much weight? I don't know. These are the things that I'm wondering about right now. Should Greg Williams be the head coach of the Cleveland Browns? I don't know. Before before I answer that question about Greg Williams, I do want you to know this. Nitsa and I both care about you, and we both want you to know that even though we've made a ton of progress with drunk driving over the past couple decades, there are still a lot of people dying every single day in alcohol-impaired vehicle crashes, 29 people every single day. That's one person every 50 minutes and a lot of people don't realize i mean they know they know drunk driving uh, is dangerous and we need to keep pressing that on people and letting them remember and, and, and reminding them hey don't drive drunk give the keys to somebody else driving while high can be just as dangerous and this is the lesson i want to impart to you if you feel different you're gonna drive different. In 2015, 42% of drivers killed in crashes tested positive for drugs. From 2007 to 2015, marijuana use among drivers killed in crashes doubled, doubled between 2007 and 2015. So depending on what state you're in, and by that I mean uh, state in the union, but also uh, what's your mental state? What have you been uh, What have you been imbibing or partaking of? It's legal in a lot more places now, uh, but it doesn't mean that it's safe to drive when you're high. So whether you're drunk, whether you're high, if you feel different, you drive different. If you drive high, you'll get a DUI, drive sober, or get pulled over. I care about you guys this holiday season. I care about the Cleveland Browns fans as well. I never want the Cleveland Browns fans to think I've forsaken them, and that's why I will tell them this. Do, please, please, please do not allow your team to hire Greg Williams as your head football coach. I know it feels nice right now. I, I know the team is playing well. I know Baker Mayfield seems like he might be the right fit for Greg Williams because he's a renegade, isn't he? And so is Baker Mayfield. Here's the difference between Baker Mayfield and Greg Williams. Baker Mayfield seems like an eminently likable dude. I know a lot of people, like maybe you're a Longhorns fan, uh, but maybe you're maybe you're a Steelers fan. I don't know. A lot of people might not like him, but you can envision yourself being on a football team with Baker Mayfield, can't you? You can think, wow, if Baker Mayfield were my quarterback, I'd like this guy. I'd have a good time with him. I want him leading my team down the field. Now envision yourself with Greg Williams as your football coach. Imagine... I don't know what you I don't know what you do for your job. Let's say you're an accountant and you work at a big firm and every day you have to go in and and listen to your boss talk. If do you want to go in every single day and hear your boss talk about how stupid you are, how dumb you are, how he wants to give you money to take out other accountants at other firms. Uh, do you? Is this what you want out of your your accountancy boss? No, of course you don't. And you don't. You sure as hell don't want it out of your football coach because Greg Williams is a clown. Greg Williams was seventeen and thirty-one in his three seasons with the Buffalo Bills. And let's not forget, and this is the most important thing, this is what you need to remember about Greg Williams, is that professional football players are full-grown men who can snuff, sniff out bullshit like this. This is Greg Williams, remember, on October 31st, telling everybody about how many jobs he'd been offered in the last couple of years. 
You know, that, and, and that is a, that's a legitimate question. You know, since I left Buffalo, I've had 11 letters sent in to interview for head coaching jobs. And, and, uh, and all of them behind the scenes I have, and I have, and four of them I didn't even have to show up, just signed a contract and come. But, you know, the structure has to be correct. And, um, you know, I have my thoughts on how things have to be done. So that's Greg Williams. Greg Williams of Bountygate. Greg Williams claims that he had four job offers via letter, letter, mind you, that letter, not email, not phone calls, not text, but letter. He was offered four jobs where all he had to do was say the word and he'd have taken that job. Think about that in comparison to other bona fide good head coaches who haven't had four head coaching job offers after interviews in an offseason and who don't have the stain of Bounty Gate behind them. This is not the man that you want as your head coach. He's He might be fine as an interim head coach. Maybe he's the best interim head coach who ever lived. He's not the guy you need. And I, and I wonder about this, too. If you're, if you're Jimmy Haslam and you're the owner of the Browns, is this the guy you want to talk to? Is this is this really you know I I keep thinking about the owner of the Warriors talking about Mark Jackson when he let Mark Jackson go and there were there was talk that some of it was just simply that he was kind of sick of Mark Jackson's shtick whatever that might be and Greg Williams I would say compared to Mark Jackson would be like if if Mark Jackson's shtick is the common cold, then Greg Williams is stage three cancer. He's just uh he's not he's not an enjoyable dude to be around. Maybe John Dorsey, the GM of the Browns, has somebody else in mind or lined up. Um, does he like Greg Williams himself? You know that he loves he loves players that are outlaws. He loves Marcus Peters. Um, he loves Antonio Callaway. He loves all these other guys. Maybe he's got a soft spot in his heart for outlaws. But that's what Greg Williams is. As far as Bounty Gate goes, I will say Sean Payton's got a job. Nobody's up in arms that Sean Payton got his job back. Sean, Pay- Sean Payton signed off on Bounty Gate. So I'd be willing to see past Bounty Gate if Greg Williams weren't so ridiculous about all of it. Uh, I, if the Browns do offer him a job, I don't for a second think that he actually has job offers lined up out the door the way he claims he does because he's a liar. Um but he would probably be inclined to sign a you know an Oakland Raiders style well Oakland Raiders before John Gruden but a shorter term deal just to get him in the door and 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 get that shot of being a head coach I just I I can't advise any more strongly against hiring Greg Williams as your head football coach Cleveland write letters maybe you need to write letters to the Cleveland Browns organizations because that's the way Greg Williams operates. So write letters to them, not emails, not phone calls, not texts or anything like that. Don't post messages on social media. Just send letters. Now, because I was out today, we had Michael Lombardi still calling into Mad Radio, but it was Adam Clanton and my normal co-host, Mike Meltzer, who interviewed him. They did a fantastic job of it. I'm going to play the Michael Lombardi interview for you guys, and then you can uh, we'll, we'll chat about it afterwards. So here's Mike Meltzer and Adam Clanton with Michael Lombardi. Do right now, Michael Lombardi joins us. He is the author of Gridiron Genius. He also writes for The Athletic and The Ringer as well. In advance of week number 17, Mike, good morning. How are you? 
I am wonderful. Happy New Year. Hope all is well. Guys, you guys are bailing on you here, man. You know, one loss and everybody takes time off. Yes, you got to you got to <laughs> let Seth know he can't be taking these days off. Just kidding. Uh, Cuz he yeah. he had the days. Um let me start with this. So there was a decent amount of criticism on Houston Sports Radio Monday about Bill O'Brien not going for it on a couple of fourth downs. If you look at the numbers, like not a lot of coaches have gone for it on those situations based on game score, where it was on the field. What did you think of Bill O'Brien and his conservatism on Sunday as compared to the aggressiveness of Doug Peterson, Mike? Well, I mean, Peterson has always been aggressive, almost to a fault. I mean, there's been so many games. I mean, the Minnesota game he lost because he was too aggressive. I think sometimes it's always... You know, not what's good for the gander is good for the goose. You know, I think you have to play each situation. The way that game went, I mean, really, the way the game came down to it, you know, you got the call on Clowney on the, on the roughing the passer, the third and ten throw that Foles makes. I mean, you know, and then the kid makes a long field goal. So, you know, it's one of those situations where, you know, they, they had a position to win the game. They just couldn't close it out with their defense. Let's say you had our jobs. If you're reacting to this game, how much of it is, Mike, heartbroken over the loss of the two seed and the opportunity versus, hey, this team has huge weaknesses anyway, probably not going to win the Super Bowl or really contend, and Deshaun played, I thought, really well on Sunday, especially in the comeback. I, I think this is a this is a deficient team, but let's let me say this. All 12 teams that are going to be in the playoffs, perhaps maybe the Saints aren't, are all deficient, and it's how you overcome your deficiencies. And I think what Bill's done this year has done a great job of overcoming. I mean, now he loses Demarius Thomas to an Achilles, you know, losing Will Fuller. I think this is a different team with Will Fuller. I don't think people understand what Will Fuller brought to the offense. He took the coverages into him. You know, he allowed himself to make plays down the field. That's a huge loss. He was an explosive player. You know, he's got the Eagles, which is a hot team. Let me say this to you. The Bears don't want to play the Eagles. The Bears better think twice about winning on Sunday because if they play the Philadelphia Eagles in the first round of the playoffs, they'll lose. So I think you've got to be real careful. The, this Eagle team's playing at the highest level it's played. I thought they did a great job in protection. I thought the Eagles' defensive front would cause even more problems than they did. So, you know, I think this is a deficient Houston team. I think the Will Fuller loss. I think the secondaries hurt them. The lack of having draft picks has hurt them and not being able to cash in on them. I think the future's bright because Hopkins is great. Watson's is great. Watson is great, and there's some good defensive players. You actually uh, set me up perfectly for my question because you know the the defense, notwithstanding, and what and what has happened and continues to happen basically since that Cleveland game. Um, I was going to ask you if you could assess Brian Gain in his first year as general manager, and, and is this Texans team that defense, notwithstanding, are they a, a an offensive line address away from being real contenders to do something? You know, I think they, they're an offensive line must get better because, as I've said all along, all bad offensive lines don't travel well, and this is not a good offensive line. There's not enough power in the line. They can't get control of the game. I think really what this team needs is a back-end a back end help. I think when they need some corners. When Jonathan Joseph is still your best corner, yet his age and where how long he's played in the NFL, it tells you a lot about where your secondary is. I think they definitely need secondary help this year. With the Kevin Johnson injury, I mean, that hurt them. They've had a lot of injuries they've got to overcome. So I think they're, they're more than just one area to fix. But when you have Hopkins and when you have Watson and you have got this ability to make plays, you're always going to be a contender, and I think they're going to need to add. They're going to need to have a solid free agent period. They don't need splash; they need solid, and I think that's the key. 
Michael, Michael Lombardi joining us, the author of Gridiron Genius. He also is from The Ringer and The Athletic as well, joining us here on Mad Radio. After the last two drives the Texans had, the two touchdowns, Foreman and Vincent Smith, some of the reaction is O'Brien has to unleash Deshaun Watson. That's what the offense always has to look like. Do you agree, or is that a vast oversimplification? I think it's a vast oversimplification. I mean, look. There's things that, that Deshaun can do really well, but when you unleash Deshaun, you're unleashing an offensive line that has its limitations as well. So you've got to be careful. you always got to keep in mind about your offensive line, and then you've got to make sure that you're not playing a game to where your defense is out. Because, look, what happened in the Cleveland game is problematic. You get ahead in the game, and then all they do is throw, and all of a sudden it exposes your weakness, and Watt's tired, and Clowney's tired, and everybody's tired of rushing, and all of a sudden – you know, they can throw the football on you more effectively because you're tired. And I think that's really the key. I think we, we lose sight so much of, of this and then the NFL about the conditioning of players and the exhaustion of players in the fourth quarter. And that's why games come down to that. If you don't have a lot of depth, you lose games because you don't have depth. And I think this is the biggest issue for the Texans as we go down. Now, they won a lot of late games in the fourth quarter. But to me, that game there, their lack of depth showed up. And I think they got tired of the defensive front. They're going to have to keep improving it. And they're going to have to add solid players. They've got stars. They don't need to add a $20 million player. They need to add about three, $4 million players to the team to really help them. You know, uh, it's. I think they're always going to be linked just because they were in the same draft and, and they have similarities in their styles of play. But I was going to see if you could compare and contrast Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson because I think Deshaun was kind of on the path to doing some of what Mahomes has done this year before that injury last year and then, you know, had it cut short. I think anybody right now would say Mahomes is the better player just because of his body of work, but... What do you think about those two, and, and uh, maybe is, is it a neck-and-neck neck type race? I think it's all about fit, right? And I think that the, where, where Mahomes is, obviously he fits well, and he's probably going to be the MVP of the league. And so you know what Watson can do, and I think Watson's limited by some of the things that's around him. I mean, look at the skill players on this Kansas City team. I mean, they're really talented. Kelsey, Tyreek Hill is one of the best receivers in football. He's not the best. He's in the top three in terms of the verticalness to take the top off the defense, which opens up a lot of different areas. And the fact that they're able to make these plays in the passing game, but look, the Chiefs defense isn't very good, so they've got to do some things offensively to compensate for that. I think it's really close. I think Mahomes, I like Watson better than Mahomes coming out. I, 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 you know, it's always hard for me with those Texas Tech quarterbacks in that system. Mahomes is unique skill set, but I think Watson's going to win his share of games. I think Watson's going to win his share of titles because I think the character of the kid will always come out, and I think the team will always win as long as he's under center. Mike, what should the Jaguars do a quarterback moving forward? Start over. I mean, they should start over last year, you know? I mean, I don't know how you go to practice every day and watch Blake Bortles and Cody Kessler practice and say, boy, we've got this quarterback position really handled well. I mean, seriously, how do you do that? <laughs> like, how do you watch that every day? Like, that's why are you going out to training camp? Like, David Caldwell, the general manager team, goes out to training camp every single day, and he watches that, and he comes back in and looks at his tape and says, boy, we're good at quarterback. Are you kidding me? You know, I mean, seriously, that that's – they're going to start over. They should have started over years ago. They should have picked Deshaun Watson. I mean, what's amazing about the Jacksonville Jaguars is they're not – you two people in Houston are comparing Deshaun and, and Mahomes and wondering if you got the best of the two, right? I mean, Jacksonville, nobody complains that they didn't even get either one of them, and they could have. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, it's remarkable. I mean, they should be – and meanwhile, David Caldwell's on a general manager list for a, head, for a general manager's job, and he's passed more quarterbacks than anybody because 
he believes that great Blake Bortles is the answer. So you asked me the question, I can't answer it because I would have fired Bortles three years ago. <laughs> Mike, when you look at the Patriots, so they win on Sunday against Buffalo. wasn't that impressive an effort seemingly. Brady's stats were bizarrely low. I'm going to be the last guy on this bandwagon, like the, the, the last guy to think Brady's done or in decline. But if you're in New England right now, what are your thoughts on Brady and the way he's played in the last month or so? Well, look, I mean, go back to uh, 2000, 2013, the year they went to the conference championship and Peyton Manning beat them in Denver. They were a running team. LeGarrette Blunt carried that team. I mean, if you go back to the Buffalo game the last year of the 2013 season, Blunt returns a kickoff for a touchdown. He has a long run for a touchdown. Brady, they didn't throw the ball well in that game either. They didn't throw the ball that season. He had 11 interceptions that year. He's got 11 already on this season. His quarterback rating is as low as it's been since 2013. So, look, when you're 41 years old, you never know when this is going to end or how long it's going to go for i think clearly they are a running team i mean that's what the patriots are they're not the baltimore ravens but they're very close to that kind of style of team they've got to play the problem with the with the patriots are they're not good enough on defense you know they're going to need to keep they're going to need to make some plays in the passing game and they're trying like hell to come up with creative ways to make plays in the passing game reverses double screens all those kind of things and it's been a struggle so i'm not saying it's over but I think you have to really be careful as you look at this team thinking how well they can play. I don't think anybody's scared of them in the playoffs. I can say that to you. Well, and that's kind of, to a, to a lesser extent, when you analyze the, the Kansas City Chiefs because they can do anything on offense. They're like a video game. Um, but the defense has been lacking at times this year. How far can they go realistically? You know, that's a great question. I think the Chiefs are, are a unique team in the sense that they're not much different than some of the Patriots teams that went to the Super Bowl. They were much better in, in, on defense. They were better on defense, not much better. But I think what Kansas City has to do is learn how to pace the game. I think, they, you know, the Kansas City's like the fat guy at the buffet line, can't wait to eat. They just can't wait to score. You know, they just like – and they get it so fast, and then their defense can't hold any and they never get control of the game. I think the key for the Chiefs in the playoffs is find a way to get control in the game. Work the clock down. Limit the possessions of the defense. Limit the time on the field that your defense is on. If you can play 25 minutes of defense if you're the Chiefs, you'll probably win the game. And I think that's what they have to do. It's all about pace and style for the Chiefs. But when they get into these ABA games where the scores, everybody scored on every possession, they've lost those games. Believe it or not, they've lost it. They lost it in New England. They've lost it in Seattle. They've lost it in, in Los Angeles. They don't win those games. Where they win games is when they can control the pace and build leads and then keep the clock moving. Michael, last thing for me right now before Week 17, how many teams can win the Super Bowl? I think the 12 that get in, if Tennessee gets in, I'm not counting that they could win a Super Bowl because if they get in and they beat Indianapolis this week, then all bets are off. I mean, like I, I – you know, I do not want to watch the Tennessee Titans play in the <laughs> playoff time. I'm sorry. I just don't want to do it. However, that being said, I think if they, if, if they get, I would say 10 of the 12 could definitely win it. I think the sixth seed in the AFC, if it's Indy or Tennessee, I don't think they can win it. But all the other teams can. And I think the same thing in the NFC. If Even if Minnesota or if Philadelphia gets in the sixth seed, they, they can all win. It's very close. It's very, very close. Michael, always appreciate it. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. Thank you, man. Thanks, guys. There's Michael Lombardi. Check out his book. It is Gridiron Genius. I know a lot of people got it for uh, the holidays and Christmas. It is terrific based on what Seth has mentioned to me. The Athletic, The Ringer as well. 
I have mentioned it to Mike Meltzer, and uh, Adam Clan now knows about it. You guys, uh, look, Christmas is over, but if there's such a thing as a New Year's Eve gift or uh, anything else, maybe for Valentine's Day, you could get that special someone in your life, Michael Lombardi's book, Gridiron Genius. It is really, really good. Also, uh, reach out to Michael Lombardi on Twitter at M Lombard NFL and tell him how much you love hearing us on Mad Radio. He he uh, he like all of us likes to hear a little bit of positive feedback. I've really enjoyed it. I've I've enjoyed our visits with him even more than I thought I would, and I'm really learning a lot from him. The guy the guy flat out just has seen more and knows and understands more about football uh, because of the different people he's worked with and his experiences. Some really good questions there from both Mike Meltzer and Adam Clanton. I want to touch on a couple of things that he said. Uh, one, when it comes to the Texans, the Texans miss Wolf, Will Fuller. Yes, uh, <laughs> in, a, in a very, very big way. And it's unfortunate for the Texans because Will Fuller is a receiver who, especially last year when he was healthy, was just scoring touchdowns at a breakneck pace. And this year when he goes down, you can see exactly what happens. He, there's not anybody that stretches the field. And because of that, teams can focus more on DeAndre Hopkins. DeAndre Hopkins, DeAndre Hopkins, it seems like he has to make superhuman efforts on almost every one of his catches, and that's not Deshaun Watson's fault. Um, it's a little bit the offensive line's fault. And, uh, and and actually, I'm glad Michael Lombardi touched on that. The notion of unleashing Deshaun Watson, I understand that. I, I get it. I get that people are frustrated that he's not scoring touchdowns at such an absurd rate as he was his rookie year. There, there are reasons for that. Um, one is simply that he was coming off an ACL, especially the first half of the season. Between coming off of an ACL and his bruised lung, he was limited physically. Bill O'Brien needed to limit the offense somewhat to protect him, and especially because he's playing behind an inadequate offensive line. There are times where the Texans are using seven people to pass protect, seven men to pass protect, which limits his options downfield. So they can't churn out yardage and first downs as consistently as you might like because he simply doesn't have as many options available to him. When they spread it out, he does a good job with it, and he's gotten better. He was having a rough stretch of reading the blitz. I think he's learned a few things in the last few weeks, and that's something to be optimistic about moving towards the playoffs. But at the, at the end of the day, they're limited by the offensive line. They're limited by not having a truly stud running back. And they're limited by a lack of other options in the receiving core besides DeAndre Hopkins. Demarius Thomas goes down with an Achilles. Kiki QT is still out with his hamstring, which seems to never, never, ever want to heal. And these are issues. The other thing is that I think there's – and the other thing that Michael Lombardi touched on is that you do always have to remember the defensive side of the ball here and that fatigue matters. I I know that people talk about this all the time, but I, I get the sense that even among some football people, they never fully believe that it's important to to protect the defense from getting tired. And I'm glad Lombardi brought that up about the fourth quarter and – why the Patriots are good and why the Patriots focus on conditioning and why they can win the fourth quarter a lot of the times, it's because they keep things like this in mind. When you have a defense like the Texans especially, 
they need a pass rush up front because the defensive backfield has weaknesses. Uh, the linebackers in pass coverage have weaknesses. They're they're incredible at stopping the run, but in pass coverage they have problems. So when your pass rush dies, your defense dies. When guys can't win with a four-man pass rush in the fourth quarter, everything dies. So as painstaking and as excruciating as it is sometimes to watch Bill O'Brien try to force the run um, because they're they're frankly especially these last three weeks where the running backs have a total of 81 yards combined rushing over three weeks uh, it's hard to watch but I understand what Bill O'Brien's doing and I've gone from probably being one of the larger Bill O'Brien critics over the last couple of years to these last few weeks, I think defending him more than most people because I, I'm fully understanding and realizing exactly what constraints he has right now. So come playoff time, I think you're going to see more read option out of Deshaun Watson. I think Kiki QT can make a big, big difference. And then in the defensive backfield, look, they have issues at cornerback, Health will matter, and just simply being healthy between Jonathan Joseph, Kareem Jackson, Kayvon Webster, perhaps. Um, and I don't, I don't know if Aaron Colvin's any good or not. But by having all those guys healthy, I think that you can, you have a team that, with the right matchups, can get some damage done. But they are also subject to matchups. You know, they're they're not that well-rounded a football team. Teams like the Eagles or the Kansas City Chiefs, um, but we just saw with the Eagles, obviously they're not going to see the Eagles in the playoffs unless they made the Super Bowl. Um, but now, now speaking of the Eagles, very impressed with Nick Foles yet again. Uh, very impressed with their offensive scheme. They did a great job using picks, uh, using scissor concepts, using all these different things to knock guys, knock defenders off of their men uh, and to confuse them uh, or, or physically obstruct them in a legal way. You know, there were some really good, clean, legal picks where the receiver was just running his route and, oh, the guy, yeah, I didn't redirect myself or anything. That defensive back was just in my way and nothing, nothing you can do about that. That's a legal pick. So, uh, I thought the Eagles did a great job in that. The comparison between Mahomes and Watson that Adam Clanton talked about, I think that Michael Lombardi brought up probably the classic points that anybody would, which is that Mahomes has all those tools around him at every level of the defense. Well, not at running back as much anymore uh, because of uh, because of because of misbehavior. Um, but I, I wonder long term where or if Mahomes' judgment catches up to him in his risk-taking qualities. I I think he seems like he's pretty conscientious, and I think he's going to tame some of that. I think Deshaun has had to learn maybe faster than Pat Mahomes when and where to take his risks because, for one, Deshaun was coming off of injury, and two, because he just doesn't have the weaponry around him. So there's there's not as much of a payoff for taking some of the chances that Pat Mahomes does because the guys catching the ball either A, can't get to the ball to catch it, um, or B, aren't going to do as much damage if you, if you thread the needle. So I think Deshaun has spent his sophomore campaign learning to be judicious where I don't know if Pat Mahomes has really had to. The other question that they asked that intrigued me was just about Tom Brady. And and I think Michael made the point that the Patriots are a running team now. They 
they are a team with a quarterback who needs things to be good around him. And it's weird to say that about Tom Brady because he's always been the guy that's made things good around him. He's always turned guys into better players than many of them actually are. And then Gronk just simply looks – he looks spent. You know, Gronk just – Gronk does not look like he's moving smoothly or athletically or explosively. And I know, I know Gronk's on the TB12 method a little bit, but we all knew this was coming. You know, Gronk has had injuries his entire career – and he lives hard and fast and loose, and you don't really expect Gronk to age well. You know, uh, it, it's interesting. There are always guys. There are always guys who are the exception in terms of how hard they can live off the field and how much fun they can have. And a lot of times, these guys are guys that still work out really hard. Like Gronk works out really hard, but you just think at some point, especially in the modern NFL, it's got to catch up to you. Now, he says he's not going to retire, and I think a lot of people are skeptical of that. The one thing about Gronk is that he he loves making money, and he's very good at making money because he's a good football player. They tend to make money. But he also, like, when, he, when he's socializing in the offseason, a lot of those are paid appearances. Like, I don't – for one, he never has to buy a beer because somebody's always – somebody always wants to have a drink with Gronk. But he's also doing a lot of appearances. He's always been very careful with his money. Uh, not stingy, but frugal. And I think a lot of the things that he does buy or a lot of his material possessions are either sponsorships or given to him. You know, he goes on those cruises in the offseason with his family. Those are all paid events. And he's also been criminally underpaid in terms of what his impact is on a football team. So he's constantly renegotiating his contract. It is a, it's strange that he's paid based on what other tight ends are paid you know, and that there are so many wide receivers that make more money than Gronkowski who are, you know, in their prime versus in his prime are simply not as big an impact on a football team. But that's the way the system is right now. And uh, I don't know. I'd, I wouldn't be surprised if he ended up spending a year somewhere else. I know he said he didn't want to play with anybody except Brady and that he would threaten to retire if the Patriots pr- traded Brady last offseason. If that's true, I would say the one thing is that that was last year and that this is this year. I personally right now would say there's a better than 50% chance, in my opinion, that Gronk plays somewhere next year, even if it's not with the Patriots. But once again, man, Belichick does not get this stuff wrong. I mean, he does every now and then. But if Belichick is thinking about trading a veteran player, whether it be Tom Brady and I know that supposedly was never, ever, ever going to happen, but he was ready to move. He was ready to keep Jimmy Garoppolo around because he thought the end was near. So, for whatever that's worth, maybe this is Brady's time. Sometime over these next couple of years, you know, the stats would the stats would certainly suggest that it is, since he's already pushing the envelope in terms of performance from a guy his age. But as far as Gronkowski goes, look, the Patriots are ready to trade him reportedly, and this is how it goes with them. They usually trade them a year or two before they finally go kaput, and it looks like Gronk may have gone kaput, at least in terms of being classic Gronk. Big games this weekend, obviously, Colts-Titans. I'm so proud of the AFC South. Look, the AFC South was at the doormat for a long time. Uh, A lot of times there would only be one good team in the division, whether it was the Texans or the Colts or whomever. 
And so uh, there was a little bit of a lull there with us in the AFC South. Now you've got a win in your in situation. An AFC South matchup between the Colts and the Titans gets flexed to Sunday night. I'm very excited about this. I would prefer that the Titans win. I like the Texans matchup versus the Titans more than the Colts if they end up seeing them. Uh, But I think that much like in the last meeting, I think this ends up not being much of a contest. I think the Colts simply match up to the Titans well. The same way the Jaguars match up well to the Colts. Uh, as you recall, the, the 6-0 drubbing they gave the Colts not too long ago. But the Colts, who beat the snot out of the Titans just a few weeks ago, uh, they, they've got the antidote to what the Titans are good at right now, which is giving the ball to Derrick Henry. I don't care whether I don't I don't care who the quarterback is of the Titans. Derrick Henry is making that team go right now. The Colts run defense, as as we in Houston saw, you know, they turned Houston's running offense back into a very pedestrian affair because they've got a they've got a improving defense, I'd say. It's a good defense and it's improving because so many of its key players like Darius Leonard are young. Uh but they are very good run defense and I think they can handle they can handle the Titans rushing attack and Derrick Henry just fine. And I think this ends up being, this ends up being a Colts victory and the Colts will make the playoffs. The, um, let's see, I already told you guys about Dan Carlin, the, uh, the Patriots. I already talked about the Patriots. I think we're good here. Lamar Jackson, Lamar Jackson. Uh, I think Lamar Jackson has gotten to the point now where people have shown enough highlights of his good throws that he's, getting overrated as a passer by people saying, hey, he can actually throw the football to where, okay, he's still not throwing the football a lot and he's not throwing it consistently well, but he has had success on third downs and his running ability sets things up. Ross Tucker, Ross Tucker made a great point, friend of the show and uh, former deceptively fast guest Ross Tucker made a really good point about the Ravens running the ball on third down and having success at it. And part of the philosophy there being, hey, if you're willing to go for it on fourth down, then why not run on third and ten? Because if you get up to fourth and two, you know, and it's 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 not that hard to get to fourth and two or fourth and three when you run on third and ten because you're facing softer defenses um, that, that are playing more conservatively. So if you're willing to take that risk on fourth down, then why not run it? And then they've actually been converting a lot of these. And I think that that just like so many other quarterbacks that can run like Lamar Jackson can, they just open everything else up and they create opportunities for the other, for the other runners. They create opportunities in the passing game, particularly on play action. And he also has an offensive coordinator in Greg Roman, who you remember was the offensive coordinator for the 49ers back when Colin Kaepernick first came into the league. And he's been with Tyrod Taylor um, and has had a lot of success designing offenses that really combine a lot of new school and old school elements, like old school power football, but running it out of the pistol. Greg Roman was in Houston uh, and was actually the the quarterbacks coach for David Carr one year. Dom Capers recognized and, and saw something in him, and uh, I like Greg a lot. Greg's a, Greg's a good dude. So let's leave it there for today, and I will be back in full force next week. Sean Pendergast and I might be able to squeeze out an extra podcast tomorrow or Saturday. But if we don't, then I wish you all the best and the safest. Be very, very safe this New Year's Eve. Love you guys. Thank you.